whether it's exercise and fitness and when they're supposed to go to the gym, put that on your calendar. Because very often we just leave that as negative space. So people put things on their calendar that are have tos, things I wouldn't remember. But if you carve out time for exercise, self-care, alone time, whatever it is, if you prioritize that, like, but if you don't put it on your calendar and you're like, Hey, Saturday morning is the only time I'm going to have two, three hours to really focus. Well, if you don't block it out and somebody says, Hey, can you drive me to the airport? You look at your calendar, it's empty. And it's hard to remind yourself, wait a second, I reserve that. So I have people make sure to put that on there because now if you say yes to that, it physically pushes your thing aside. It minimizes it, or you have to delete it or you have to move it. And if there's nowhere to put it, it gives you a reminder and buys you time to be able to say, you know what? I'm blocked Saturday morning, but why? What's up? Let me check and see. And then it just gives you a little bit of time to remind you that like, yeah, that's a priority. Welcome to Cut the Crap with Beth and Matt, the world's number one no bullshit health and fitness podcast. Are you ready to cut the crap with your diet and exercise, get strong as fuck and build a healthy relationship with food? Then you've come to the right place. Let's Let's go. If you'd like to support us in the podcast, join our Patreon where you get exclusive content, which consists of monthly workouts you can do at home or at the gym, monthly challenges that are either strength, habit, or mindset based, and access to over 100 plus low calorie, high protein, family friendly meals. These are all designed by a professional chef who is certified in nutrition. These recipes are already in my fitness pal for easy fucking tracking. New recipes are also added each week. We believe that fitness is for everyone. So this is our way of getting you started on your health and fitness journey at a price most everyone can afford. So what the fuck are you waiting for? We'll see you in the Patreon. Joshua. Josh Smith is a psychologist I met at the Inner Circle Retreat in Austin with Jordan Syatt. Um, and I loved everything he had to say. And he actually did a group um, speaking event for my coaching clients, which was amazing. They loved you. Um, so we decided to have Josh on the podcast because, you know, who doesn't want to talk about boundaries and communication? Everybody, right? You know, we need it. We need it. We all want to talk about it. Setting them is a harder thing to do. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> So I'm going to let you, if you don't mind, introduce yourself and kind of tell people what you do, who you are. Sure. Of course. Uh, I mean, well, first I should start off by saying happy birthday. Thanks. So I'm a psychologist and I've had a little bit of a roundabout career. I've gone in a bunch of different directions. I mean, early on, I did a bunch of outpatient work and you know individual therapy and trauma work. And then I spent the first part of my career working all in inpatient settings with severe and persistent mental illness. So I started off working with, with a lot of psychotic disorders or people who who really needed to be maintained in that inpatient setting. And probably about half of what I did was forensic. So half the patients that I was working with had either committed a crime and were not competent to stand trial uh, and were sent to the hospital to be restored or, you know, or stabilized, or they had gone to trial and been found not guilty because of the mental illness, and then essentially civilly committed to the hospital for an unidentified amount of time. And so that I, I did that for quite some time. And all along, I've had a private practice where I do more kind of individual couples, family, you know, work. And I transitioned from, from inpatient work to working in a pain center. So I now predominantly three days a week, I work in a pain clinic, all with chronic pain, chronic illness, injuries, uh, nerve-based conditions. Uh, So I work there three days a week as a pain psychologist and two days a week, I I do more individual therapy in an outpatient setting. That's the overview. That was the quick. Yeah. There's a lot there. 
pain psychology. So what goes into that? Ah, that's a wonderful question. I'm glad you asked. You know, I know a lot of people, you know, chronic pain and then taking that chronic pain and maybe not being able to do certain things that that may, you know, get to someone obviously. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think from a pain psychology standpoint, there's, there's kind of two different directions that I go. Uh, one is more physiological in nature. I teach people relaxation techniques. Uh, I teach them, you know, meditation, breathing exercises, progressive muscle relaxation, all of which has been really well researched and found to be helpful for pain. And over the last few years, there's definitely, there's so many more apps and things out there about meditation. Most of that is geared towards the emotional side, anxiety, depression, all of which I think it is incredibly valuable for. What I'm after is slightly different. When the body is in pain, it goes into a very similar uh, fight or flight response. The whole autonomic nervous system, all of these functions we have no conscious control over, muscle tension, uh, sweat production, respiration, heart rate, blood pressure, they all adjust. And so when the body is in pain, by nobody's conscious control, the body has a tendency to tense up. And that doesn't necessarily cause pain, but it can exacerbate pain. So much of pain is caused by irritation, swelling, basically something is pushing out where it shouldn't. If the entire musculoskeletal system around it then pulls in, it can just make things worse. So I teach people relaxation techniques that are almost meant to be uh, like a life hack. You know, can you trick your body into eliciting its counter response to the pain stress response? You know, so the fight or flight response, if you're out for a walk and a dog is running at you, it's the autonomic nervous system that says, "Uh oh, shot of adrenaline, get your muscles tense, get ready. But if somebody catches the dog and leashes it, there's a visual cue that tells your body, okay, bring everything back down. Mm. You're saying chronic pain, right? Exactly. And then it brings it back to baseline with chronic pain. It's almost like having an invisible assailant. So the body constantly stays at the ready it can just over time can be, it can exacerbate or make pain worse. So some of what I do is, you know, without, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a big nerd. So I tend to go off on this kind of stuff. So I'm trying to keep it We're as consolidated too, so as possible. Awesome. Okay. Uh, we love to I hear know, it. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> and I feel like I have to swear at least five to six more times. You do. And I, I was going to say pain management for me is just saying a few fucks a lot. So. <laughs> oh my God. I swear all the time. And it's funny. I wish I could say I could control it, but um, uh, sometimes I almost joke like five minutes into a session with a brand new person. I'll be like, fuck, that sucks. And then I'm like, oops. I mean, that sounds awful because <laughs> Truth is, most of the people I think just appreciate anything genuine. If it's yeah. genuine, people appreciate it. If it's kind of a shtick or if it's bullshit, then people don't. Really quickly, Joshua, on that note about saying fuck or or expl expletives, right? Um, and pain management. Um, I remember reading a study a couple of years back about how that can actually help with pain tolerance. And they they used it in a weight training, strength training uh, environment that some when they somebody yelled out fuck or some type of a swear word while they were exerting themselves, they were actually able to lift more weight. Is there any validity to that? I remember reading something similar. And I, you know, I can't say this is an area of specific expertise where I can mentally okay. bring up all the research. <laughs> but yes, because when you swear, when you get out of your comfort zone, when you stop trying to filter what comes out, I think it can release endorphins. And so, you know, that whole notion of like just letting it out and having that kind of attention release can allow the body to relax, which ironically makes it stronger, you know, because when you're overly tense or tight and you're not allowing things to go the way you want, right? I mean, I'm sure 
now now I'm treading on on both of your expertise, but that's why I think there's so much conversation about the importance of form over over the amount of weight or how heavy like because form is everything. And if the body is tight and certain things just can't move the way that it wants. So I think there's a lot to be said for even, you know, just letting something out and screaming like that can can help. Well, I know when I stub my toe and I yell out, fuck, I feel a lot better afterwards. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this stubbing your toe is the worst because there's no one to blame. So you get an, a shot of pain and rage and there's nowhere for the rage to go. And God forbid somebody's within eye shot of you, they become the lightning rod for that. And you're yeah. more likely to kind of look at, you know, a roommate, a partner and, and, and say, did you move the Ottoman? And it's like, you, you mean <laughs> the Ottoman that's been in the same place for the last 10 years? No, I didn't move the Ottoman. Like you just kicked it. Nobody to blame, but yeah. <laughs> so the, what's interesting about the body though, is that like, if you're doing meditation, breathing techniques, any of that for stress, it's so much easier to measure, right? If I feel nervous or stressed going into a presentation and I do a breathing technique and I feel less stressed, uh, I don't need anybody to tell me that the breathing technique is working. What I'm after is kind of impacting the physiology. So I do some biofeedback work, mm -hmm. which really is a measurement tool. I essentially teach people these relaxation techniques. And then they, when they come into the office, I hook them up to a, a monitor, nothing uncomfortable. I have one that goes on the hands and one that goes on the earlobe. And it looks at all of these physiological variables associated with stress and tension. And so I give them about 10, 15 minutes to try out whatever technique we're working on. And at the end of it, I can pull it up on the computer screen and I can show them. I can show them, are we getting the medical or physiological benefit that we're looking for? How did it change your breathing, circulation, heart rate, which can help with buy-in. You know, I think that sometimes when people are like, I'm doing this ridiculous thing Josh is asking me to, but I have no idea if it's doing anything. When I can show them, hey, it might not be soothing, but you just lowered your heart rate. You increase circulation throughout the body. That can decrease inflammation. It can help with healing time. And all the research says over time, it can decrease the intensity or severity of pain. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's one part of what I do. The other part is more what, you know, Beth, what you were saying before of, of how do you cope with and deal with, with injury or change in your, like, and so I do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy work. You know, Beth has already had a, a front row seat to, I think, and speak in metaphors. And so I have a lot of different models and concepts and things that I go over to try and help people understand or conceptualize or track how pain or injury or loss or trauma impacts their day-to-day -day functioning, which sometimes can just help people keep an eye out for, okay, well, where is pain impacting my life the most? And is there anything I can do so it's interrupting fewer important things? Some of it is ex to explain chronic illness to people who don't understand any of your listeners, or I think almost everybody has some sort of chronic condition, chronic issue, something they're dealing with, right? I mean, I could put parenting in the, in the category of a chronic condition, you know, because once you have kids, it's something that you are thinking about and taking care of all the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people just don't get it. And so when you try and explain any sort of chronic condition to people who don't get it. The worst is people who love you and care about you and want to get it, or the people who think they get it and don't, they will say the rudest, like kind of most dismissive shit, not on purpose, but people will say things that are really rude and inconsiderate by accident. And so some of what I go over, give people a different way 
to talk about it or explain it without having to go through all the specific details. So it's so a combination of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, communication boundaries. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, when you've had an injury, it changes the rules. It changes your, your how you have to almost budget your energy and effort changes. Mm-hmm. And when you're used to a different way and you're used to doing all these things for other people, and now all of a sudden you've had a 10, 15% reduction in like what you can output in any, any given day. It's hard to realize, yeah, I'm going to have to change that system and stop doing everything for everybody else. Mm-hmm. So do you work with a lot of people that have, let's say like an invisible chronic illness, like a chronic pain? So that's got to be tough, especially communication around that and trying to make people understand that I actually am hurting right now. Yeah. A lot of chronic, actually, I mean, a lot of chronic conditions in general, anxiety, depression, pain, there that when when you have an invisible or kind of something that you don't wear openly, mm-hmm. I think one of the challenges is my experience is that people put a lot of time and energy and effort into not showing that they're in pain or hurting or upset because whatever your chronic condition is, it's exhausting enough to live with it. Then you don't want to talk about it all the time. You don't want the 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 headline of every story to be about this one issue. It doesn't define you. Right. And people put a lot of time and energy into not showing it, Mm. which is a real catch 22. Because I think when you're dealing with anything chronic, when you're around, there are some people you don't want to know. So when they say, Hey, how you doing? You say, I'm good. How are you? Because you have no interest in that person knowing. Right. The problem is if you're at a party or a family gathering or something like that, and people ask you that, there are some people you don't want to know. And there are some people when you say you're okay, you want them to see through it enough to know you're not at your best, but that you don't want to talk about it. And when you fool those people, it sucks because you can't really be mad at them because you're the one kind of, kind of trying to fool them and you could tell them, but you don't want to talk about it. And so with almost any chronic condition, I think there is a loneliness component that we don't talk about. Because if you feel lonely, if you feel lonely and you look around and nobody's here, okay, well, the brain, the mind, the psyche, whatever we want to call it, it can handle it uh, because it at least makes sense. If you are in a room full of people and they think they know what's going on with you and they really don't, it is a whole different type of loneliness. Being surrounded by people and feeling lonely, that gets you in a different way. It's almost like living in a video game where you're the only one who knows that you're in a video game and you're playing your role also, and you know it's just a game and they don't, it makes it hard to relate to people. Because if you are in, if you are in pain and agony, if you're sad, if you're dealing with cravings, if your whole body is on fire and you're trying to put on a face so you don't ruin the event for other people. Well, when somebody says, how are you doing? And you're like, I don't have the energy to talk about it. So I'm just going to say I'm hanging in. If they move right along to like, oh, well, I want to tell you about the brand new car that I got. And I'm so bummed because of like dis- like supply issues. I couldn't get the color I wanted. If you are dealing with something that other people can't, it's so hard to relate. Intellectually, you can say, you know what? It's fair. They got a new car. They should be able to get the color they want. Emotionally, you're more likely to look at that and say, I, I can't. I can't get there. Like you, you got light gray and you wanted dark gray. I just, I don't give a fuck. Like what a trivial problem, right? Right. I like it, you know, when, you know, when you're dealing with something that is nonstop bothering you, when every single morning you're like, Hey, to get out of bed takes 
everything I have. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not worried about the color of your car. You know, if every single time you go someplace, you are looking at the chairs, where you can sit, where you can stand, you're watching the clock, you're thinking about how long you're going to be there, and other people are complaining about things. It's hard socially, and it will start to feel really isolating, which is going to take pretty much any chronic condition and make it worse. Mm-hmm. So with chronic pain, do you see it a lot like people come to you for for help with managing this stuff? Because from a medical perspective, like they've just kind of been dismissed by their, their medical doctors, their primary care physicians, or do you feel like you know, because I, I feel like with my clients that I've worked with, they get dismissed a lot with, with chronic pain and things like that, because they, it's hard for them to explain what they're, what they're feeling or because it doesn't show up on labs and things like that. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. That's, I mean, we might need three podcasts to cover all that. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's a phenomenal okay. question, but mm-hmm. luckily I'm, I'm in a lucky scenario where I'm working in a pain center. Um, so I work with, with pain physicians and okay. rehab, uh, spine. So typically by the time people get to us, they're seeing a physician who is a hundred percent on board, knows that they're in pain, knows something go- is going on and is there to help them. The problem is it takes years for people to get to us sometimes. A lot of suffering. And that road can have a lot of dismissiveness. Our medical system right now is not really well set up for a medical mystery. So if you go into the doctor a lot of physicians are basically if, I mean, and I'm, I'm o- oversimplifying, but let's say most doctors, three there's like three categories of what constitutes 80% of what they do. What they want to know is, do you fit into any of those three categories? If you don't, not to sound like my grandfather, but you know, it, it used to be that some physicians were like, well, you fall into that 20% mystery category and I'm going to stick with you so we can figure it out. It's not the way medicine is set up right now, at least not in the US, where very often they're just going to say, well, you don't fit in those three categories. I'm going to send you to another person. And they're going to ask, do you fit in those three categories? And if you don't, they'll send you to another person or they take kind of a shotgun approach and you'll leave an appointment where they'll say, I want you to see an orthopedist, a rheumatologist. Uh, you know, I want you to go to here. I want you to go to there. I want you to do Tai Chi. I want you to do PT. And they just will tell you to go do everything. And I think sometimes the medical system misses it. And if they can't figure out what it is, can be really dismissive. They can, you can run, if you run into the wrong provider, you know, and again, I say this knowing full well that, that I'm a guy, but women in medicine are also treated just very poorly. Unfortunately. Yeah. I see that with clients. Mm -hmm. Especially with things that you can't see or test or find. And it sucks because there's research that literally shows that women have a higher pain tolerance than men. But what's interesting is if, you know, if Beth and I both walked into a physician with shoulder pain, there's a possibility I will walk out with imaging sooner than she will. And the irony is the research says I'm more likely to overstate my pain and she's more likely to downplay it. Mm -hmm. So I think what happens, especially with certain Certain disorders, certain certain issues are very invisible, like GI issues, anything gynecological. We don't talk about these casually. Like nobody's in high school. And if somebody says, oh, I had really bad cramps, they're not like, what kind? Were you on your side, doubled over, felt like you were going to rip in half and then vomited? Like nobody says that. They just say like me too, because they wouldn't know. And so if they go years thinking that it's normal and then finally build up the courage to say to their doctor, hey, I think this isn't normal. And the reaction they get is, are you sure you're not just being a little dramatic? 
mm-hmm. it will take somebody who's like, hey, it took me a lot to even ask for help. And then I got kind of shamed and they'll go back into you know, hibernation and they, and then often it's not discovered until they end up in the hospital or something serious happens or, and so I see a lot of people who, by the time they get to the pain clinic have seen God knows how many physicians have gotten tons of different opinions, you know, and most of the people I see, whatever the standard or normal treatment didn't work. So when people get referred to me, sometimes it is because we're trying to take a multidisciplinary approach and we want to use medication, but we also need behavior change. And then you also need the emotional component of how do I cope with or deal with the fact that my capacity may have changed. Sometimes what I see with people, their their immediate worry is that their doctor has sent them to me because they're saying, oh, your pain's not real. And so I need you to go talk to a shrink. And they get to me and I'm like, no, 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 your doctor absolutely thinks it's real this is just one other way that we may be able to help. I mean, you're not going to be able to do meditation or breathing technique and make pain vanish when there is a you can medical. Manage it though. Yeah. But if it can decrease it 10%, mm-hmm. well, when you're in pain, 10% is better than nothing. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting area. <laughs> totally. And when people are struggling with this and this goes back to, you know, that you're struggling, but you're, you're not telling people that you're struggling. So so kind of a communication thing. So what's a communication barrier there? Well, I mean, sometimes it's just trying to figure out a way to talk about it. And it's funny in the metaphor category, and I would put this one in the category of, of self-care across the board. So this is going to apply for almost anybody, but one of the ways that I talk about it is I will say to people that will think of your pain or self-care or whatever your chronic issue is, I will tell people, think about it like having a dog. Well, if you have a dog, you have to plan around it. And so if you have a chronic condition or a chronic issue, that means you are thinking about it all the time. Everything that you do, you have to plan around it. Somebody calls you and says, you want to go away this weekend? Your first thought is, all right, can I make that work? What do I have to do with my dog? Can I bring Mm -hmm. my dog? How does that change? So the first thought that goes through your head is this one component. And What's interesting, some people don't have a dog. So if you think of this more like self-care, some people need very little self-care, right? That's almost like not having a pet. So people who have never had a pet don't understand it. So these are the people that will just randomly be like, hey, you want to go away this weekend? And you're like, I can't just up and go away. And they're like, really? Are you sure? Because they've never had to plan around something. They've never had to think about what adjustments, what accommodations. Some people do have a pet but they might have an easier pet. They might have a cat where it's like, right, what do I need to think about? I need to think about once a month, I need to get food. And every three months I have to go to the vet. That's like, if you have a medical condition that responds really well to meds and you're like, right, well, if I'm going to go on vacation, I need to make sure that my medication isn't going to run out while I'm away. So I have to get some in advance and I have to have regular medical checkups, but it doesn't interfere with your life as much. The problem is with self-care, If you have a dog, right? Some people have an easy dog. You know, some people have a really hard dog. And if it's, whether it's addiction, anxiety, depression, pain, it's not a dog you asked for. So what ends up happening is it's almost like if you're leaving the grocery store one day and somebody just hands you a dog and says, this is yours now. And you're like, wait, no, thank you. Right. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want it. Can I, can I give it back, please? (laughs) And they're like, nope, it's yours. And so then people will say, okay, well, you know, you can go to this shelter. They can take it maybe, which is like basically like going to the doctor, 
right? The first doctor you go to, you're going like you would go to a shelter to say, hey, can you take this from me? Can you take this away so I don't have to deal with it anymore? And you go there and they say, oh, we're not a specialty shelter. We're just like a regular run of the mill shelter. You have to go to a specialty shelter. So they send you to another shelter. You go there and they say, you know, normally we can take away this kind of dog, but this time we can't. So, you know, but check out this other shelter. And at some point they shift. And the next recommendation they give you is to go to to a, a trainer. They stop sending you to see, can I get rid of it? And they start sending you someplace to say, okay, well, can I teach you anything to try and make the dog a little bit better? Can I teach you tricks, strategies? Like we're now working behaviorally to see if you can make this dog less of a pain in the ass. But the problem is, I think that if you think of this, of how we all neglect self-care, if you have a dog, everybody's dog has a different algorithm. How much time, energy, and effort do they need to be at their best? And the problem is sometimes we don't want to have to plan our day around this dog. We don't want to have to, so we push it. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to have a dog that has a three to one ratio, you can go do whatever you want for three hours, but then you have to pay attention to that dog for an hour. You have to do something with your dog for an hour. If you don't, then all of a sudden your dog is pissed and is going to destroy your apartment, take a shit in your shoes, chew up something like, you know, so what happens is if you meet a bunch of friends to go, go to a few stores and then grab lunch and you're like, great. I took my dog for a walk, did everything I needed to do to take care of my dog. I go to do this. Well, if at the end of lunch, one of your friends is like, hey, well, can we just go to this one other store? You can feel it. You know that you are running out of time before you have to go do something. But we don't want that restriction. So people will push that and say, "Uh, okay. So they push that boundary. They push that boundary. They cancel their self-care. They put whatever this other demand is ahead of it. And they know it. We all have had that moment where you're like, you can feel it in your body where you're like, I got to get out of here. And then finally you check out and then you're in the car and you're like, I got to get home. I got to get home. And the whole time you can feel that you've pushed yourself. And every time you're hoping, this is the time I'm going to get away with it. This is the time I'm going to come home and my dog is going to be like, we're okay. No Mm -hmm. big deal. You got home 40 minutes late. No problem. And it never does. You come home and now it's all destroyed and torn apart. And now it's not an hour that you have to pay attention to your dog. You're going to spend all afternoon and night just trying to clean up from that mess. And you're desperately hoping you can get your dog calm enough that it's not going to be a shit night. And now you're not going to get a good night's sleep. And then tomorrow you're, you're screwed. And all of a sudden, anybody who invites you out, asks you to do something, you're immediately thinking about it. Is my dog going to be in a good way? Can I handle it? Somebody invites you to dinner immediately. Your thought is going to be, okay, well, maybe I can arrange for like a doggy play date in the morning. I'll have to leave work a little bit early, make sure I have a little bit of time. And then I can go to this two hour dinner. But if my dog hates thunderstorms and it's a rainy day, I can do all the planning I want. And if it's a rainy day, I have to cancel. I have to be able to just say, I, I, I can't. And if I try and take my dog with me, that's not going to be a fun dinner. Right. The whole time you're like, all you're thinking about is like, my dog is biting me. It hurts. This is like, I don't want to be here. I don't want this to ruin everything. So it's not enjoyable. So when people are like, come out, you'll have fun. No, I won't. Not if that's not my version of self-care. And right. if I supersede my own need, what I know, it's always going to result. And we want it not to be. And we don't want to think about it all the time. 
And we don't want to have to prioritize and we don't want to have to miss out on things. But if you ignore it, you pretty much always are going to end up experiencing some sort of consequence. And we just, we've gotten to a point where, where we lose sight of what we need to prioritize. You can feel it, you know it, right? Whether it's nutrition, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's just having an hour to yourself, you know what these algorithms are. And sometimes you don't want them because some people don't need as much time or effort, you know, like for self-care. And so you then start to compare. And if you see somebody that is working 90 hours a week and you're like, okay, I don't know how they do it. Well, okay. They don't have a dog. Mm -hmm. So it's easier, right? If, If you ask anybody who's just gotten, I don't know if either one of you have pets or, you know, or kids, but either one, you ask anybody who has a puppy, your new dog or new kids, how long something takes. Right. If I get a, if I get an IKEA dresser delivered and somebody says, how long is that going to take to put together? New new dog owners and new parents will give you two calculations. They'll say, oh, without kids, that would take me three hours. <laughs> With kids, I'm hoping to get it done in two months. I'm like, yeah. it's still in the fucking box. <laughs> right. A year later, <laughs> like, it's collecting dust. <laughs> right. Just You're like, like I don't know. When I come home from a five day trip. <laughs> yeah. For well, sure. I don't know. I'll get to it. Right. Be- yeah. Because in some ways, when you get home from a five-day trip, your dog needs more attention, mm-hmm. right? So the issue with putting that, that dresser together is if I have a dog that needs attention, well, I unbox it. If that takes me an hour and a half, I'm then like, okay, I now need to put everything away. I got to throw the boxes away. Like I got to put the tools away. I got to put, because I can't leave that all out and then let the puppy out of the crate. So I have to put it all away, play with my dog for an hour, put it back. And now I have to get back to it. And if I only have these two to three hour sections, there are only so many things I can get done in a day. And if I don't prioritize them, well, then all of a sudden, right? Because the the dresser isn't a priority. But when you get home from a five-day trip, your dog needs some attention. Like consistent, you can't come home, check in with your dog, say hello, let it out, and then be like, well, I'm going to go out. Nope. You need time for yourself. Mm -hmm. You need to, and it will always come back. And I talk to people about jobs. Some jobs are in this metaphor, dog friendly, and some are not. Lots of jobs like to say they're dog friendly, but aren't actually. Well, it's because they have to legally say they're dog friendly. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> so if you have, if you have a dog, it's hard to try and start thinking about, right? Like a, a friend of mine is a teacher and she has pretty severe migraines. She could manage grad school, college and grad school. Like no problem because she could schedule around what her dog needed. She could have a class and then a two hour break. And then a cl- once she started teaching, you are a slave to the bell. That is not conducive to saying, Hey, my dog woke up in a way this morning. I, I need to come in a half an hour late. Can't do that. Not when you have a room of tiny humans waiting for you mm-hmm. and you can bring your dog with you. But now the whole day you're like, I'm trying to attend here. My dog's under my desk. Every time I sit down, like I'm getting bit and it just isn't a good setup because it doesn't allow for the type of self-care or the ability to step aside and the ability to do things the way that you want to do them. And it's really hard when you realize something that you're passionate about or you love doesn't fit your natural self-care or your natural time frame. And I think the reason I often use this as a metaphor is because when you have any chronic condition that requires planning around, it starts to take over what feels like your sense of self or your identity. It starts to feel like this is me. And 
it starts to really get people down or makes them want to almost give people an out to say like, you know what, like, so if a group of friends says, Hey, let's go do all this trip. And you're, and they're like, Oh, well, Josh can't come because that he can't bring his dog to that trip. And they're like, Oh, okay. Well, why don't we switch the trip to something local? If I start to feel guilty and terrible, and I'm like, well, I'm ruining their trip. Well, I feel awful about it. Right. And now I'm going to, no, you guys go. And I'm, and then I just feel, I feel badly. Even if we stay and do the trip, now I'm going to have trouble enjoying it. Cause in my head, I'm like, I ruined this other trip. I use the dog analogy or a metaphor because you have to almost remember it's not who you are. It's not you. It's this external thing that just needs to be cared for. And so people can say, hey, I would rather choose vacation B that you can be present for than vacation A and you can't be there. They're saying, hey, I love you and I care about you and I want you to be around. And I get that that means I have to make an accommodation for the dog. And I don't mind that. So I go over things like that to try and help people remember it's not you. You know, it also makes it easier when you think of it that way, because if your partner says, hey, my college reunion is coming up, can we go to that? And if I say like, no, I really, I can't, the flight, the this, the that, it's just, it doesn't work for me. You know, if my wife basically then says, ah, it's a bummer, I get it, but it's a real bummer. If I think of it as me, I'm like, oh. Like what she's saying is that like, I've ruined something. But if she says, oh, I totally get it. Sometimes I hate that dog. I can be like, me too. Yeah. So that's a communication thing. How you talk to, how you talk to people and how you respond to people. Exactly. It just is a different way to discuss it where it, it can make it less personal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It gives a different way to not have to go through. Cause when somebody says, I mean, here's the other thing. If we're talking about a dog, literally. People understand that. So if you're at lunch and that same person says, hey, can we do this one more errand? And you say, hey, honestly, no, I have to get home. Like this is when I've set aside to do some stretching and then to do my exercise or go for a walk. And I need that. People are like, well, really? You can't just like come and do the store and then like do that later. But if you say, I'm sorry, I really can't. I have to get home and and walk my dog. People are more likely to be like, oh, okay, well, I get that bummer, but no problem. And so it's like when you tell somebody your need, if that's not their need, they're more likely to push back. Whereas if you tell somebody, hey, this other thing that requires my attention and relies on me and can't wait, people don't give you as much pushback. Mm-hmm. Is that like an empathy thing? <sighs> I think I mean, that, obviously they, they, they haven't experienced that themselves, perhaps. So it's hard for them to relate to that. Oh, I think it can be empathy. It can be frustration sometimes if you run into somebody who is more egocentric or selfish or narcissistic, it can be irritating because they don't want to deal with your dog. They're not interested in it. So your dog pisses them off. So sometimes it's, it's like difficulty with empathy. Sometimes it's also people who care about you don't want you to, to have any sort of restriction. So they almost want to make it okay. These are the people that will be like, I'm sure it'll be fine. Okay. Well, that, 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 like, if that helped people, my job would be way easier. That's the, I'm sure. The it'll be fine. Right. Like, you know, if somebody came into me and they were like, I have a crippling fear of, of flying, like, and Let's I was like, fly. Oh, well, have you tried, you know, flying, not anxious. And they were like, no, I haven't tried that. I'll give it a shot. Like I, I would like, high five. Am I here for? Right. I'd be like, I'd be like, this was a good time. Like, it's nice to see you. But I also think uh, sometimes people can be very, um, whether they mean to or not, they take lots of things as a personal reflection. 
And so back to what we were talking about before. That's something I'm trying to work through currently. Yeah. So, uh, well, you know, maybe, maybe we'll come back to that then. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think sometimes, I don't know, some, sometimes what can happen for some people is if coming back to what we talked about in the beginning, if your particular need is invisible, right? If you're just somebody who needs more private time, more alone time in any given day, okay, that's, that's a need. But if other people don't have it, they have trouble understanding it. Other times, if, you're, if whatever you're dealing with is not visible to other people and you're performing at or above their level, people have a really hard time believing that you're dealing with something because it, it ends up being a personal ref- reflection on them. So if most of my life I was used to being able to do more in any, in any given day than, than the average person, let's say most people can do like 10 to 12 things on a checklist in a day. And the capacity for everybody is 20, but a lot of people are just totally comfortable with 10 to 12 and then they're done. Well, if you're normally somebody who's been a 20 checklist item person your whole life and something happens, what normal aging life changes, shifting your priorities and wanting to use more of those items for you than, than for everybody else. When something shifts, well, if all of a sudden I have an injury and I am getting 10 to 12 things done, and then I'm doing six or seven self-care. So I'm still doing 20, but all of a sudden, six of them have to go towards like my health and my well-being. Well, if I look healthy and people can't see whatever it is that I'm dealing with, right? Whether it's addiction and it's a like, okay, well, I have to use a certain amount of time a week to go to meetings. If it's anxiety or depression and you're like, I need to use a certain amount of time to do therapy or spend time by myself or whatever it is, people can't see any of that. So if you say, hey, I'm really struggling, you look okay, and you're getting the same amount done as that person, if they know, hey, you are actually dealing with some real shit and you're still getting the same stuff done at work than I am, what does that mean about me? So some people have an ability to say, holy shit, the fact that you're doing everything I'm doing and you're, you're have is incredible. Other people, whether they mean to or not, can actually take it very personally and be like, then it can't be as bad as you're saying it is. Okay. Because if, if you're outperforming me or if you're performing as, as high as me and you look okay, then you must be totally fine. I oh got, I relate to this so much. It's crazy. Uh, I just, know. Just speaking from like my own addictions, like people didn't believe that I was an alcoholic when I, because I hit it very well because I stayed, didn't, I wasn't going to the bars and drinking. I was drinking at home and I hid the alcohol. So when you come out with these things, like there's no way that that was you. It's like, no, that was everything you're saying. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you are a functioning alcoholic, right? So nobody saw you. Saw you having a problem. And then anxiety. My husband knows that I've been struggling with anxiety since I was a kid. And he still will be like, oh, you can't do this because of your anxiety. And, and it's like, well, you know, we've gotten in fights about it. It's like, listen, this is something that I, like I really struggle with. Like if you only knew how I like anxiety, it can be crippling. Oh, anxiety can be all encompassing. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I've been to the hospital cause I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I mean, you name it, but you know, you can look at me and be like, oh, she's fine. It's like, no, I actually know how to live with anxiety so well. I, I have practiced just moving through it, which takes a ton it's exhausting. of energy and effort. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many different metaphors you guys want to hear in one podcast. I mean, I love the dog metaphor. Like that was so fucking good. Yeah, totally. The dog one, I just, I, and I think that one's so useful because you can 
concretely keep reminding yourself, right, this is a real need. This isn't like when I prioritize something and I actually, I have people put it on their calendar that way. So if somebody puts down, whether it's exercise and fitness and when they're supposed to go to the gym, I'm like, put that on your calendar, mm-hmm. you know, because very often we just leave that as negative space. Yeah. So people put things on their calendar that are have tos, things I wouldn't remember. But if you carve out time for exercise, self-care, alone time, whatever it is, if you prioritize that, like, but if you don't put it on your calendar and you're like, Hey, Saturday morning is the only time I'm going to have two, three hours to really focus. Well, if you don't block it out and somebody says, Hey, can you drive me to the airport? You look at your calendar, it's empty. And it's hard to remind yourself, wait a second, I reserve that. So I have people make sure to put that on there because now if you say yes to that, it physically pushes your thing aside. It minimizes it, or you have to delete it or you have to move it. And if there's nowhere to put it, it gives you a reminder and buys you time to be able to say, you know what? I'm blocked Saturday morning, but why? What's up? Let me check and see. And then it just gives you a little bit of time to remind you that like, yeah, that's a priority. I have some people where I'm, I say, don't just put on there me time, because if that triggers in your head that it is a want, not a need, just something I want, you know, well, then if somebody says I need a ride to the airport, you're going to be like, oh, well, I wanted that time to myself. And, you know, I, and the way I typically discuss that is people chronically mislabel needs and wants. And if you mislabel it, a, a need will always outweigh a want. It will always win out. But in that scenario, if you label three hours to yourself as a luxury and you call it a want, well, that person calls and they say, I need a ride to the airport. No, they don't. That is, that is a want. It's a request. They don't need it, but they've mislabeled it. So if you mislabel your needs as wants, and you have people in your life who mislabel their wants as needs, you will keep putting everybody ahead of yourself. And so I tell people all the time, well, think about, is there another way to get it met? Is there another way to get three hours on a Saturday morning to yourself? No. You you only have so many hours. Yep. Like there's a ton of ways to get to the airport. So and you don't need to get that from me. You can get it from somebody else, right? That right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. Money can get you to the airport. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I mean, not actual money, but, you know, we all exchange of goods and services. And then, you know. and then when you start doing those things, though, like we, Beth and I were just talking about this on a, another episode we just recorded um, with put people pushing back on those self-care routines and things that you're doing for yourself as it being selfish, right? How... Self-care has this stigma of being selfish when that couldn't be further from the truth. Self-care is, is self-preservation is the way I look at it. Yeah. Yep. It's so critical to everything. And people will push back on it in shocking ways, especially if they're used to you doing things for them because they don't want that change. And also, if you're making change that they haven't been able to make, that can also be very threatening to people because if you say, hey, you know, me and my best friend have fi- have been saying for years, we really wanted to start getting in shape and I start doing it and they haven't. It can be threatening. That person can feel bad about themselves. We have a really hard time just saying, wait, I can celebrate somebody else. I can be happy for somebody else. And that doesn't have to be a commentary on me. And the other metaphor that I use all the time, you know, is anytime I talk to people about what are your overall resources and how do you track them, whether it's with chronic pain or not, I use a cell phone battery as an example. We charge a phone battery overnight, just like we sleep. So the hope is when you wake up in the morning, your phone's been on a charger, you wake up and your phone's at 100%. 
I would probably argue that most adults don't wake up at 100% because either they don't spend enough time sleeping, so they're not getting enough time on a charge, which means they're not at 100%, or any chronic condition is like pulling your phone on and off a charger all night long. So whether it's anxiety, depression, stress, insomnia, any of it. Well, if your phone is on and off a charger all night long, if you wake up, I think the first thing that we do is we look at the phone and if your phone's at 70%, you're like, great. At 70%, I can make it through my day. I already have to be a little bit more thoughtful about how I use my battery and where than other people might. I can't be frivolous with it. And life is like all the apps on your phone, right? So you know, we have a finance app, we have a work app, we have relationship apps, but stress, anxiety, guilt, guilt is like the worst fucking app. Like, because it just opens whenever it feels like and drains your battery. And Pain or any sort of chronic condition is like an app you can't close, which means you never know. You never know what's going on with your battery. So we've all had those days where you wake up, you look at your phone, 70%, not bad. And at the end of breakfast, you're at 45%. And you're like, what the fuck? I didn't even do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, because some of those apps started opening up and at 45%, I can't make it through my day. So now all of a sudden... I have to look for little ways to plug my phone in throughout the day. Which that causes stress to you throughout the day then, right? Yep. Because the whole time you're fighting low battery. And so, oh, look at the puppy. (laughs) Meatball. Is it meatball? Oh, come on. So cute. But so I think those those opportunities, right? Whether it's like I'm going to have two cups of coffee or I'm going to stop by my favorite coffee shop or, you know, people will nap. I don't actually think napping charges which is your battery. Uh, I, I think napping just keeps it from draining. So if you sleep for an hour in the middle of the day and your battery's at 40%, you don't wake up at 60. It's a neutral. Right. You wake up at 40, but you didn't go to 30 and you've cut an hour out of your day. So you're a little bit closer to the end of the day. So the challenge is like all sorts of different things, charge your battery versus drain your battery. And if you are on your way home at the end of the day and your battery's at 15% and your phone rings, I think we all do an internal calculation, quick calculation. This person, if they're in a good mood, can give me 5%. And if they're not, they can cost me 20. So if their range is plus five to minus 20, I'm not going to answer the phone. Yeah. I, I can't take it. It's too much of a threat. But the worst part is, God forbid, I have a guilt app. If that opens up and I feel bad I didn't answer, that can take 5%. Wow. So. Just by not just by my phone ringing and me not answering, I went from 15 to 10. And at 10%, your battery goes into low power mode. And at low power mode, like it shuts down non-essential applications. It's just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think it, a bunch of things go away, right? So I think two of the first things that you lose are, and I'll, I swear this will make sense, but uh, you lose filters and shields, right? These are two things that require batteries. You're vulnerable. Right. And a filter, we all filter. We filter all day long. You know, we don't say just what's on our mind. I mean, it's, it's why I love so much of what you guys do because you're not filtering all this bullshit. You're not trying to like make it sound nice. You're not trying to, you're being just really upfront and honest, which is why I think you guys have such an incredible response. Every time I listen to one of your podcasts, see your posts, it's all in line with this. We just have to be upfront. And so much of our current what faces forward isn't upfront. It's we want to show you the end result without showing you what went into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's why 
it always drives me nuts anytime I hear a conversation or see something about having abs because I think it's so off, right? Because what people mean is, do I have defined visible abs? Lots of people have incredibly strong abs and have a six pack. You can't see it, right? but that doesn't mean they don't have the strength and that they haven't put in the work. And there have been maybe a couple times in my life where I probably had actual like abs, but never visible. Like, I mean, one, because Once or twice I'm, in my life I can think of. So <laughs> yeah. And I, I, and I was never willing to put in the work that right. would have been necessary to actually see them in any way, shape or form. I, you know, that's just, I'm always going to eat. Um, For but, sure. <laughs> you know, but so I think you got to be upfront with people. And so I think that we filter all day long and the challenge is if you've ever been at work or heard somebody say, Hey, I got to get out of here before I say something I regret, they have no filters. They're low battery. So they can't filter it. So if I'm at work and we're supposed to do a training by the end of the month, and I have a colleague who's asked me like four times when it's due, I showed them how to do it. And then they, I hear they keep asking other people and an email goes out and I know it's about them saying, here's a step-by-step how to do it. Here's when it's due. If on a Friday, they walk up to me and say, hey, can you show me how to do that again? What goes through my head is you got to be fucking kidding me. I showed you last week. You didn't do it. I happen to know you've asked other people, did, like, but I won't say that. I filter it. And if I'm lucky, what comes out is, unfortunately, I don't have time today, but if you saw there's an email with a really good explanation, that takes battery. And if I'm low battery and I have no filters, things just come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that. When I, when I worked in corporate, I was... I've never had a filter. So um, <laughs> that was a good and a bad thing in, in corporate, but um, I didn't have a lot of friends, but I wasn't there to make friends either. So <laughs> it can be a great thing. And, you know, I mean, I would argue that like, frankly, I would always rather people have a little bit less of a filter than not, but it somewhat depends on what they're thinking and what they're filtering. Um, if what yeah. they're filtering is the truth and is like reality, then like, no, let it out. Um, but, uh, and the shields component is that, I think we all have our vulnerable spots. We all have our spots that are sensitive. And so our defense mechanisms, healthy ones, are like shields that kind of protect those sensitive spots. So if somebody says something, well, it's like throwing a rock at you. And if it hits your shield, you still feel it. It still drains your battery a little bit, but it doesn't hit you right in that spot. Once you're low battery, no more you don't have filters or shields. So everything feels raw. And we don't communicate this way, by the way. So it's not like if I get home at the end of my day and I am low battery and I walk in the door and my wife says to me, hey, did you see that email we got about this thing in March? Can we go? I'm not likely to say, hey, listen, I'm low battery. I can't open my calendar app. So I have to go recharge. I got to take a shower, eat something, go to sleep. Let me try it tomorrow. It's more likely to come out. I've been in the door for like two seconds. And you think I give a rat's ass about this party in March? Like, but if your partner is pushy or keeps asking, if you keep trying to open your calendar app, it will force close. You don't have the battery. And every time it force closes, it kills another 20, like like quarter of a percent of your battery. So it will just keep going down. And so people will just say, yes, they'll just be like, yep, we can go. But that's like clicking yes on an invite in your email. You did not consciously open your calendar and put it on there, which means you won't remember. All of a sudden, yeah. end of February, you look at your calendar and you're like, what is this? When did I agree to that? You won't remember it at all because you were low battery and you couldn't catalog it. 
And so it's really fascinating how this can impact people end of the day, right? I mean, if you're on the couch, if your phone, your actual phone hits zero, it just shuts off. It doesn't matter if you have another email to send, another phone call, it's done. it just powers down. Mm-hmm. So will we, and people will just fall asleep. And so people will fall asleep on the couch for 10, 15 minutes and your phone doesn't come back on at 20%, comes back on at 2%. So you wake up 15 minutes later and you're like, all right, do I have enough battery to like get off the couch, go wash up and go to sleep? And if not, I'll power down again until I have enough battery. But now if I go to sleep two hours later, that's two hours less on the charger. Tomorrow's not going to be 70, 75%. I'd be lucky to hit 50%. So people have this diminishing return throughout the week. And it's just, I think that it's important to start looking at what charges your battery, what drains your battery, and are you wasting any of it? Are there people in your life that you just, every single day, you donate 5% to them? Or maybe not every day, but maybe it's 20% a week. Because with that phone call, those toxic people who just want to drain your battery, they just want more and more and more, and nothing's ever going to be enough. Call them bloodsuckers. They're like vampires. Yep. And you know, once you get into kind of personality disorders where people are really, you know, kind of focused on them, they don't care about your battery and they actually don't lose a lot of battery because they don't have a filter. They're more than willing to just kind of take or demand or ask what they want. And if you're a natural caregiver, if you're naturally, you know, an empath or, you know, if you're used to saying, Hey, if I have the battery, the right thing to do is kind of help out. Well, then you'll start donating battery all over the place. I was kind of thinking about that. Like, what if you're at hundred percent battery to start the day and you're like, okay, cool. I can do all of these things. I can donate battery here. I can donate battery there, energy there. And then, and then before you know it, you're like, this should last me the entire day, but then you're halfway through the day and then you're already, you're drained and you're like, what the fuck? I started at a hundred. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we've all made that mistake where we mm-hmm. completely and totally miss budget. Oh, that's only 5%. And then you're like, oh, I didn't realize where I was driving with you was like two hours away. Like, oops, or diamond. Yeah. You know, or every time I've ever done a project and my wife says, how long will it take? I'm wrong every time. And I try and say like, here's what I think it will take. Let me add two hours. And I'm still wrong. It's, it's incredible. That's my own blind spot, but. Well, we're awful at estimating things too. So yeah, yeah, right. And, but I think that the, the battery, like I've used this to go through a bunch of different things to help people understand where they're at. One is saying like, yeah, where are you donating battery and how do you take some of that back? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of figuring out, you know, well, what amount of battery do you need for something? Because if you have something really important on a Saturday evening, well, okay. If it's been a rough day, a rough week, you know, Saturday morning should be battery conservation. You should be doing things that are good for you. Because if you wake up and say, well, I'm going to do some errands and then I'm going to do some yard work and then I'm going to go help this person move. And then as long as I have an hour, I'm good. Well, if you take a shower and get ready and you're like, "Uh oh, I'm at 20%. Now you have to decide if I go out, either I'm going to cancel this and now I'm pissed because all these other things, I don't, I didn't have enough energy to do the thing that was important to me. Or you go out and you're watching your battery the whole time. That is what I think of as anxiety right? You keep checking your battery meter, but anxiety kills your battery. So if every time I keep turning the screen of my phone on and checking my battery, I'm going to get exhausted. And if I'm at a graduation and it's starting 10 minutes late, I'm watching my battery going, this is ridiculous. Like it's got to get going because it's a threat to me. Uh 
Same thing with people who say idiotic shit, right? If I'm at a barbecue and I'm at 65% battery and somebody says something that pisses me off, well, if it brings me to 60%, I'm fine. I just walk to the other side of the, you know, the room and I just don't talk to that person. If I'm at 20%, same exact comment, same 5%, very different experience when that is a quarter of your available resources. And now you're 5% from low battery. And all you're thinking of is how do I get out of here? Yeah. So what I'm hearing is like, protect your resources, um, but also have resources that you can turn to in your life that add energy and value back into your life. Absolutely. And share this with people. It's a different way to talk about it, just like the dog, right? It's a different way to say, because if you walk out of a meeting and you look exhausted and your roommate, partner, spouse, whatever, you know, says, oh shit, what's wrong? You know, was it work? Was it this? Was it that? That can be exhausting. And when you can just kind of say, time out, I'm low battery, that makes more sense. You know, when, like, when you both get home, I, I have couples who I'll say, hey, when you leave to go home, text each other and say, I'm on my way home. Where's your battery? Because if you're both low battery, things aren't going to go well, right? If I get home at the end of the day and my battery is low and normally I bring the barrels in and I just go and sit on the couch because I'm just beat and my wife's out with the kids and I'm just sitting there and I feel guilty and I feel bad and I just can't move. And she comes home. Okay. Well, if the first thing she says is, oh, did trash pickup not come today? She may just be asking that because I always bring them in. And she's like, oh, that, I mean, she may be giving me shit, but like, you know, if she's not, I have no filter and no shields, right? So that just hits me. I am going to take that so personally. And I'm going to launch back and say, you know what I did today? And I blow like, and and the first thing you do is come home and give me shit about the barrels. Mm -hmm. And God forbid she's low battery. Right. Well, in her mind, she walked in, asked an innocuous question, and I threw a rock at her. And she's going to be like, I've been with the kids for the last four hours and you're giving, and now all of a sudden our night's ruined because we were both low battery. Neither one of us had. And so learning to communicate with that way, right? It just, but you can also use this for motivation for almost anything, right? So when I was in grad school, um, I belonged to a gym that, um, you know, it, it was in like a strip mall. And on the end of it, there was this like little convenience store that got bought out. They put a huge grocery store in. They decreased the parking by about 20% and brought in this massive, awesome grocery store. All of a sudden, parking at the gym sucked. So I didn't have this rubric for it then. But for me, well, I needed 15% battery to get to the gym. 15% or I couldn't do it. And when I went to the gym, I would get 20 to 25% back. So it wasn't like a net gain of 25%. It was a net gain of 5 to 10% battery. Right. All of a sudden, when you got there and you couldn't park and people parked like idiots and it could take me, it switched it. And all of a sudden, now I needed like 20 to 25% battery to get to the gym. And I was lucky to get 20 mm-hmm. to 25% back. And I just stopped going. And I couldn't. And, and I was like, I don't know why. I just don't feel motivated. I went from loving going to the gym to I just can't do it. And it's because I would come home and I didn't have this in my head. So for people who are trying to figure out ways to stay motivated, you got to take a look at your battery and you have to look for things that are within your reach. So if you come home at 10% and you need 15% to exercise or get to the gym, if you keep saying, why can't I get to the gym? I got to go to the gym. This is ridiculous. You're just depleting your battery. You're getting further from being able to get there. 
But if you can say to yourself, honestly, I'm at 10% and you know what gets me 5%, that's your goal, right? If you're like, you know what? I need to do this and that, that'll get me 5%, then I can try. It's like that something is better than nothing mentality, yeah. essentially. Yep. And it's why, it's why so many people will say, if you can just get started, mm-hmm. you know, mm. I, um, I used to work with somebody who used to say that, uh, no matter what he, he walked every single day and he would say, no matter what, even if I do not want to walk, I commit to it for three minutes. He said, I don't care if like, by the time I get my shoes on and get up to the end of my driveway, I walk two minutes up the road. If I still don't want to go, then I will go home and be done. And he said in his entire life, he can only remember once that by the end of that, like five minutes that he wasn't like, all right, I'm good to go for a walk around the block. Yeah. But you have to know what your motivation is. You have to know where your battery is. You have to, you know, I mean, and I use this to describe introversion and extroversion all the time, right? I mean, a natural introvert can be very social, but they drain socially. A natural extrovert charges socially. So the classic argument between an introvert and an extrovert, if they're dating or friends or is they go to a concert, at the end of it, the extrovert is charged. They are like fired up and they want to be like, where do we go next? Right. After part, what do we do now? An introvert is going to be like, you've got to be kidding me. It's a miracle. I made it through the whole concert, Mm -hmm. you know, without having to go home. I want to go home and put on comfortable pants and not talk to anybody for three days. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, or same with after work, people were like, Hey, do you want to just like go gra- grab a drink or grab a coffee? An extrovert will be like, yes, that would be amazing. Cause I'm so drained and that will charge me up a little bit. An introvert will be like, that is the worst threat to my personal, like well-being that I've ever heard in my life. And now I feel guilty for having to say no. And just the request will be frustrating. Mm-hmm. And neither of those things are wrong. It's just they're different people. Right. And when you start to learn and know what charges your battery and what doesn't, then when somebody says, Hey, let's go to this thing. Let's go. Let's, let, let's go to a concert. Let's go for it. Well, if you're like, yeah, that actually doesn't charge my battery. You feel way less guilty saying that's awesome that it charges yours. If you don't know, then you start going, what's wrong with me that like anybody else would jump at that free ticket. Anybody else would die to go on that. Anybody else would, well, who cares what anybody else would, if it's not what works for you and your battery, then fuck it. You know, and when you think about it that way, it's easier. It's easier at times to be like, no, what charges my battery is like take out and sitting in front of the TV. Mm-hmm. I'm both. I'm both. I can, I'm, I'm a natural introvert, but I love to be extroverted and be social, but those things are very draining for me. Um, I know when I came back from Ho- this Hawaii, I was in Hawaii for eight days with 10 people and I loved every moment of it, but I was ready for it to be done. As, and then when I got home, I was, I shut the fuck down for like a week. Ask Beth. Like <laughs> I was like me yeah. when I went to Arizona and I was surrounded to a seminar with like 500 people. And I came home like, I don't want to talk to anybody for like yes. a fucking week. Okay. I'm alone. Yeah. I'm alone. Just I'm going to be mute. <laughs> you can be an extroverted introvert and you can love being social, but it means you have to, it, you kind of almost have to build up steam. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those, a natural extrovert is going to go to a conference and be like, yes, I will do literally everything. Right. A natural introvert will be like, no, I'm really excited for this next part. So I can't just, if I, in my head was like at lunch, I'm going to go back up to my room, chill out, relax, you know, go for a walk. If people are like, Hey, do you want to go do this? A natural introvert is going to be like, no, because then I can't enjoy the second half of the day. Mm-hmm. You give me an hour, then I'm going to recharge. And then I'm going to be psyched to come out. 
And when you are an extroverted introvert, people also get very confused because they're like, but you're the life of the party and you're so social and you're so like, and you're like, well, yeah, but what does that have to do with the fact that every once in a while, like I, I need to be by myself or I don't want to be in that limelight or I don't want to bring that energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love these metaphors. You're like the master of metaphors. You're, you're blowing my mind with these. It's so easy to understand. Yeah. It's how my brain works. It's a very funny thing because, you know, the people I've been working with for years, every once in a while, I'll, I'll say like random things and, you know, I'll be like, you know, it's like the brain characters and they're like, what? And I'm like, oh, have we not gone over that? And I'm like, we've known each other for like six years and I've never told you that one. Like, and it's like, I literally like wrote down a list. Cause you know, I was like, I was like, I don't know where we're headed. And I'm like, I want to just make sure it's a value. And I didn't have the dog one on my list. Well, what we've talked about so far is definitely in line with what we promote oh, yeah. on our podcast of keeping things simple and breaking it down in a way that people can understand. And you, we've done that perfectly here. I mean, it's, I love what you guys do. Most of what I do fits right. We in. never know where our episodes are going to go because we don't plan anything. So <laughs> we live on the edge. Yeah. It's it's like Seinfeld, the show about nothing, but also like we cover so much. Right. Somehow right. it just goes in that area. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute amazing episode. I'm excited. For really? I've earned a ton. Really. Thank you so much for coming on. Are you kidding me? Thank you so much for having me. I was so psyched when, we, uh, when you reached out and I, anytime, I will come back anytime. Awesome. We'll hold you to that. But I know, right? before we go, do go, Josh, if people are interested in connecting with you, do you offer services online and things like that? Like how can people find you and what do you have? Yeah. So the the quickest and easiest way to find me right now is through Instagram, which is DRJ Smith or Dr. J period Smith. That's the best and easiest way to get a hold of me. I do offer things that I'm hoping to start doing a bunch more starting in January. You know, I just wrapped a four-week, you know, kind of group session talking about boundaries, toxic relationships. Nice. I'm hoping to start offering a bunch more virtual groups. I do individual consultations or guest speaking type things and I'm hoping in the year to come to make it a lot more accessible and a lot easier. Thank you so much, Josh. Yes, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. This was amazing. It was so nice to see you both. All right, Josh, talk to you soon. All right, I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So why not share it with a friend who needs to hear it? Send us a DM on Instagram or email us at cutthecrappod at gmail.com and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cutthecrappodcast. As always, we appreciate you and thanks for being here.